Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Chai Mishra, founder and CEO of Move, the first community-owned national retailer. And in this episode, we talk about his journey to building the largest digitally native supermarket in the United States. We talk about fundraising and how he went through Y Combinator, raised funds after that, why he decided to go crowdfunding as well later on with WeFunder, which their campaign opens up November 15th. You can actually look at it right now though, wefunder.com slash move. Why Chai spent two plus years figuring out the supply chain for Move, what they look for in producers for their platform, and so much more. As always, these show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Just helps more people find the show. This episode is brought to you by Pivot CMO. Whether you're a startup and you've just launched your product or a larger business, accelerate your growth with performance marketing solutions from our partner, Pivot CMO. They specialize in performance marketing solutions that have helped countless companies double or even triple in the first few months of working with them. Their boutique, extremely data-driven, and launch and iterate quickly. 84% of their clients double their revenue, and they're focused on digital marketing channels like Facebook and Instagram, Google, Pinterest, and of course, TikTok. Their founders are involved with every account, so you don't get a low-level account manager, but instead a highly skilled and experienced outsourced CMO. They've helped a number of Y Combinator and venture-backed companies along with Fortune 500 companies. So no matter the size or stage of your company, use Pivot to help with all of your marketing and growth needs. To book a consultation, visit pivotcmo.com. That's P-I-V-O-T-C-M-O.com. Without further ado, here is Chai Mishra, founder and CEO of Move, which you can find at shopmove.co. Chai, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. Very excited to chat about you and your company and what you've done with this the last you know, number of years here. And for people who aren't familiar with Move, what are you guys doing there? Yeah, Move is a supermarket. We make our own brand of supermarket products and we ship them all over the country. And uh, the bigger picture over here is that we think that the way in which commerce is done, um, especially e-commerce has sort of developed over the last couple of decades, it's just not as efficient as it can be. It's not as enjoyable as it can be, and it's not as ethical as it can be. So big picture, we want to build an alternate form of e-commerce that's a lot more efficient, a lot more ethical, uh, and a lot more enjoyable. And the big way in which we do that are not so secret sauce really is that <laughs> uh, we actually work directly with the producers. We work with these really fantastic people. Who've, a lot of them have won awards. A lot of them have Michelin stars, things like that. We work with these really great producers uh, and we bring their products directly to our members and we kind of cut out all the inefficiency, the middlemen, all the, uh, the supply chain um, uh, loopholes that traditional retail works through. And we just bring these incredibly high quality products without the markups, without the middlemen directly to our members. Um, and while doing that, we try to pay everyone um, as fairly as we possibly can from the producer to the warehouse worker to the delivery driver. Uh, we try to pay everyone um, as much as we possibly can while still offering a um, competitive, compelling price. So we're a supermarket, and what we're trying to build is an alternate form of e-commerce. 
I love it. And after doing a lot of research uh, around this as well, have many questions with it. And one of the things that I've become kind of more obsessed with as uh, I've done research and talked to more founders is kind of this idea of founder market, founder product fit. For you, why did you want to work on this idea? Yeah, it's, um, I hate saying it because it sounds kind of corny, but um, it really was a, I was kind of born into it. it. It's been sort of this lifelong um Fantasy, I think, is really the only word, um, is to, to be involved in this industry. Uh, a little bit of backstory on me. I grew up in India um, in uh, the uh, early 90s. And um, if you pay attention to, uh, to Indian history at all, that was this period that uh, the Indian economy was opening up for the very first time. And uh, you know, I was part of the, the first generation of people that sort of saw... Uh, the market go from having one or two car brands and one or two brands of products in the, the supermarket to all of a sudden these all of these new companies coming in and everybody leaving their job at the government starting a business. Uh, my dad did the same thing. The same the year I was born, he left his job at the government and he started his own trading company. And as a result, I spent the entirety of my childhood, or at least a large part of it, um, with him in uh, warehouses, steel mills, uh, factories, places like that, just sort of tagging along with him because um, my mom had a real day job that she had to be there for. And so my sister and I were just kind of stuck hanging out with our dad at, um, at all these different um, supply chain um, depots, essentially. And um, as a result, pretty early on, I kind of became obsessed with the idea, you know, whereas a lot of my friends were sort of fascinated by the finished product of something, of what they were able to convince their parents to buy for them at the supermarket, I was really very, very interested in the fact that somebody had to make this. Uh, it came from somewhere. We like to think of the lifetime of a product as starting um, when it ends up on a supermarket shelf or when we first see it on a supermarket shelf. That's, that's the end of the life of the product. Uh, yeah. There's this whole sea of people and sea of processes that go into getting something there and uh, I was very fortunate to be dropped directly into that, um, basically as soon as I was born. So I grew up really fascinated and obsessed with all of that. Fast forward um, about 17 years, I moved out to America to go to school. That's what I wanted to study. I moved to UC Berkeley, or I moved to Berkeley to study supply chain at uh, UC Berkeley. And um, uh, that lasted for about six months for me, <laughs> about six months in. <laughs> I realized that that's not really what the program was about. The program seemed pretty tailored to um, um, uh, to try to get people. I was in the mechanical engineering program. It really seemed like it was kind of built for uh, uh, helping you get a job at Tesla or something like that. It wasn't really built for people like me who wanted to be in factories for some weird reason. Uh, and um, so I dropped out and I started working when I was about 18. Uh, I was very lucky that I caught the first wave of uh, when the, the first direct-to-consumer companies were really coming about. Um, they all, all of these people were just starting to realize, oh my God, we can we can make glasses that are better and, <laughs> and more affordable if we don't um, go through the traditional channel. We can make razors, and it, it was this sort of funny um, uh, game uh, in, in the early sort of 2010s where people were had just figured out that there's this philosophy of supply chain that we could use this idea of direct to consumer and they were kind of just it just became about who could think of the next thing you could apply <laughs> people were just walking down uh the store the aisles of the store is going could we do this for yeah and why could we do this for for pants now could we do this for shoes now and so i got caught up in a, a bit of that and i um was lucky i was able to work in supply chain for a whole series of direct to consumer companies 
Uh, I worked in China for a bit, helping uh, some of these brands get uh, their manufacturing done. I worked in Germany for a bit, um, helping some of these brands get uh, retail distribution, things like that. Basically, all of the time that I would have been in college, I ended up spending working for um, direct-to-consumer brands in supply chain. And uh, around 2016, 2017, I started to feel like, you know, the, the, the pattern was getting a little tired um, of um, just seeing these brands take this really powerful concept of direct-to-consumer and kind of just apply it in this very narrow way. And so I decided I wanted to use it. I, I, th I thought the process of how they were getting their products was much more compelling than the products itself. It didn't, you know, the pants I could, uh, you know, you, you could, you could uh, <laughs> leave or take. It, what was much more interesting was how those pants were being made or how the coffee was being roasted off that. So I wanted to start a company that just had a lot to do with that process. It fundamentally was just involved in changing how these products were getting made, how they were getting brought to people. And that's how Move came about. Um, do we have any time left on the podcast after that? <laughs> well, I wish I wish I had three hours of Joe Rogan type uh, podcast, but we have an hour. So we'll make the most. I love not. I will. I definitely at one point will evolve and have some episodes that way. But I love hearing the kind of the initial story of how you get to this point because it is fascinating to see why founders are working on certain problems, especially when you look at a lot of times, I mean, very ambitious driven people who could work on, in theory, anything. And so why do you decide on work, to work on one thing or another? And it makes sense in this case. For you then, how did you decide to go through Y Combinator? How was that experience for you as well? Yeah, um, I think it was, you know, I what I was always sort of longing for, I think part of why I dropped out of uh, Berkeley and uh, part of what I, why I do what I do uh, is I just love the work. That's why I love the name of this podcast. I, I, I just wanted always a community that was just so focused on, on the work. The work had to be good and the work had to yeah. be fun and the work had to be all that. And the rest can, again, the, the, the rest just all falls into place if the work itself is good. And so I was looking for a place like that. I was looking for investors like that. Once I started the company, I was looking for um, other people that were interested in just doing good work. And um, I found out about YC uh, not too long after I started the company. I applied with it, um, knowing just very little about it, just high level stuff. And um, I remember our first, you know, sort of forgot all about it. Um, two months later, I get this email from someone named Paul Buchheit. Um, I decided it's a good idea to Google him. I find out that it's the person that created Gmail. Um, oh. <laughs> I, um, I, I have a minor panic attack. Uh, I, um, I tell him, hey, he, and the, the funniest thing about YC, this is a sidebar, is how ridiculously polite they are. Um, yeah. It's almost as if they don't realize the impact that they're about to have in somebody's life or in somebody's prospects. Um, and they're like, hey, he emailed me and said, hey, we like what you're doing. Would you be interested in getting on a call with me? As if there was any possibility, I'd be like, sorry, Paul, too busy. Um, I'm out uh, brunting and drinking this weekend. It's as if there was any other way I would, right. uh, that conversation could have gone. So I got on the phone with him. Um, and then I got on the phone with uh, somebody named Adora Chung, who, um, again, after Googling, I found out was the founder of this incredible company called Homejoy, was doing mm -hmm. really well at the time. And, um, you know, two weeks after that, I got a little uh, acceptance notice and we got into YC. And um, so it started from me just wanting to be around investors and people who really got it. I'm not even sure I had any clear idea of how we wanted to fundraise for this. I had no idea if this was the kind of company that needed to raise 
$3 million to start or $30 million or $300 million to start. I didn't know any of that. All I knew was that uh, if I could just make it into the right rooms um, and where people were just focused on the thing that they were doing and they were good at it, that I'd be fine. All I wanted was just the ability to work on the thing. And uh, YC started off with a $20,000 check for us at the time they were running this really this program that doesn't exist anymore called uh, the YC Fellowship. And they gave us a $20,000 grant. And they'd sort of had the same discovery that if you take smart people who are highly motivated, you just give them a small amount of money, you could you could actually develop an entire new batch of entrepreneurs. And so they gave $20,000 to about, I think, uh, 40, 50 companies that got us started. That was enough to, uh, to get us off the ground. Three, four months later, they came back and they uh, asked us to join the full program, which was the, you know, the, the whole, uh, the whole nine yards of proper YC program. We joined that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's, that's the story. And then from there then, so raising the $3 million after that, take me through that. So you have a number of different investors over time that are pretty notable. How has that gone on the fundraising side? Obviously, the company itself is it's very compelling if you tell people about it. Like, how did that fundraising though go for you, Chai? So we uh, we have this really interesting um, story behind fundraising. We, like everything you'll hear about in this story, I just wanted to be doing the work and uh, <laughs> things just sort of magically kind of fell in place after that. So here's, here's how we got started with fundraising. Um, completely true. Before we got into YC, or I think maybe we'd just gotten into the fellowship. You know, $20,000 is, uh, is enough to get you started. It's not enough to take you too far. We get started and uh, I put the service up at the time. I didn't even want to wait for, I was so interested in, in getting this thing going. I didn't even want to wait for the time it would take to get a website going. I didn't even want to take, <laughs> um, I didn't want to do any of that. I just wanted to see it in action. I was so fascinated by the idea that we could get these producers that I knew um, in the in the Bay Area to make these products, and that we could sort of, you know, I just wanted to see them in our in our in our logo in our packaging. So I here's what I did: I got a Google Voice number, I put it up on a landing page. It took me all of a half a day to, to do, not even that. I mean, maybe an hour to do those things. I put it up, and I started pinging a bunch of founders and uh, a couple of investors that I knew, and I said, "Hey, look, I've got this new service going." And it's, um, you know, we're, we're, we're very, uh, we're very small right now. We're just focused on very high quality products from great people. And we're going to be very selective about who we even let use the service. So if you know someone, I'll let one person in, um, you and one more person I can let in, but that's it. And the idea was that you text that phone number, whatever you want, we go ahead and get it, uh, from these producers and then we deliver it to you. And, uh, Lo and behold, I don't know if anyone's ever said this before, but um, if you, in San Francisco specifically, I don't want to make generalizations, in San Francisco, yeah. you, could take, um, you could take a park bench, and if you said that there's a wait list for it, um, people will line up around, <laughs> around the block to sit on that park bench. It, it just was this crazy thing. It wasn't intentional at all. Um, I just said, Hey, look, I, I'm going to be delivering all of these out of my tiny convertible. I have, I, 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 I there, that's what the limitation was. And we said, Hey, we, we, sorry, we can't let a lot of people in. And, um, I, I do think, you know, just giving credit where credit's due. I think the product was compelling and these products were very high quality and they were fairly priced. Um, and it just blew up. And all of a sudden we had all these investors and all of these founders sort of itching and kind of stumbling over each other to try to get in. And I'm getting all of these emails of people trying to pull strings just to get into this grocery delivery service is effectively what it was. It was just a phone number that you could text. And um, 
as of, that's how our seed round came to be. I started delivering to a lot of these investors. And after the benefit was that I was not only um, responding to the text, I was picking up the product from the warehouses of our producers and I was delivering it myself. So I would go into people's, this is pre-pandemic, of course, I would go into people's living rooms and I would talk to them. I'd do like a mini uh, explanation of each of the products that was in their box. And no joke, that's how we raised our first $100,000 was just from me having conversations with investors who all they knew about the service at that point was that it was really hard to get into. And that was compelling <laughs> enough for people where we were able to raise our first round. From there, we got into YC, we came out of that, uh, and we were able to grow really quickly. I think we had enough of a, uh, an understanding of what we wanted to do that we were able to really make good use of the YC, um, um, the, the two and a half months of YC. Um, a, yeah. a sort of, I don't know how inside baseball you want to get here, but the way YC works is you've got these dinners every Tuesday that you go into. And then um, also every Tuesday you have um, these group office hours with your, um, uh, with your mentors at YC and you just, you sit down and you, you talk about how the company's doing. And we were the only company in our batch that missed multiple dinners and multiple group office hours. <laughs> and just to be clear, it's like the founders of Airbnb or the founders right. of Shopify or the founders of Uber or sometimes Mark Zuckerberg will come and speak at these dinners. And we couldn't go because we were too busy delivering groceries. So that's how we approach YC. And we came out of it. I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying that's what happened. Uh, we came out of it and we had really incredible growth. We were basically doubling every uh, one to two weeks. And that's how our um, full seed round came to be. We were able to get some really great folks just as we were coming out. They heard a lot about us from their investor friends who I delivered to. They saw that we had great growth during YC. And uh, when we came out, we were able to raise from um, some of my personal heroes, the 49ers as a franchise invested, Joe Montana invested, Matt Bellamy um, uh, invested, uh, the, the lead singer Muse, uh, and, and a lot of other people, the family that owns Hugo Boss invested. And I think they all did it for the same reason, which is just that we had this interesting idea and we clearly couldn't wait to make it big. Um, does that answer the question? I hope that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's good to... people to start delivering here. <laughs> so basically go to YC, don't attend any dinners, and then <laughs> exactly. build your product. I love it, man. Exactly. That's exactly what we wanted to hear on the show. Uh, but I think it's interesting to hear that perspective of, yeah, you were just building it. And I've actually... I've interviewed a number of founders now who have gone through YC, and everyone has a different experience with that. You know, Some of them, um, whether they're going through and maybe they don't hit the numbers they expected fundraising maybe doesn't go quite what they wanted. Uh, I've had that experience and also other ones who have raised a lot of money after that. And so the, the YC experience can be a lot of different things. And from the YC experience then, and you raise funding, take me through some of the logistics behind pulling this business off. What are some legit logistics, especially early on around kind of making this into an actual company? Yeah. Um, just a quick thing off of uh, what you were uh, saying about YC, Justin. I think one of the really interesting things to me that, that really kind of struck me when I um, went into YC for the very first time is how bare the office is. It's very different. I've been now had the opportunity to go into a lot of different accelerators and incubators and places like that uh, just to advise companies. And YC is totally different from all of them. Um, and the reason for that is it's just white walls, a couple of gray couches, some very small framed photographs of uh, some of the early companies and the early founders uh, on the wall. And that's it. NYC is incredibly bare. They're, they're, actually, um, um, they're actually travel bus of, full of tourists that sometimes will go to the YC office as part of tours of Silicon Valley. <laughs> and they're incredibly disappointed to find that it, there's nothing there. 
Um, <laughs> and I think the reason for that is what you're saying, which is, um, you know, I think a lot of people have different experiences of YC, but that has more to do with the founders themselves and, than YC. I think YC's sort of um, operating philosophy is very straightforward, which is, hey, there's nothing to see here. Go back into your garage, go back into your living room, go build a company, just, yeah. just do the work, you know, just go grind. Um, that's a, yeah, I love that it. A good plug? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll use that sound bite over and over again. Thank what you. Not a <laughs> I, I try to always work it in, uh, but uh, no, so um, um, no, but you know, uh, that's very much how YC uh, works. And so that's what we took from it was we really almost to our own detriment. We said, no, no, we, we would, it kind of came around to, um, uh, to um, it sort of full circle, the snake eating itself over here where we said, oh no, we are going to be so focused on, on working that we're not even going to pay attention to YC. We're even not, we're not even going to be at the dinners. Um, <laughs> and so that was kind of our experience of it. But, uh, you know, back to, to what you were saying, uh, I think around, um, around the end of YC, it became quite clear to us that this was going to be a very different type of company in terms of what was what it was going to take to build this thing. We looked around, and this is at this point 2017, and um, we did a quick sort of reading of uh, retail business history, and uh, we, we saw a couple of interesting facts. One thing was that um, it took about 25 uh, year, uh, a little bit more, about, about 30 or almost 40 years between Walmart and Amazon that that shift between what was the largest retailer to now what is, you know, what sort of defined version, let's, let's call it version one of retail Walmart. And yeah. uh, I think the major shift Amazon that took about 30 to 40 years. That was one thing. An interesting fact was that Jeff Bezos was born the same year that Walmart was started. And so you know, <laughs> we were kind of looking at this thing that um, building it and, you know, looking around at that point, Amazon was 25 years old and, um, and we started to look around and we noticed, you know, building a retail uh, force, not just a brand, building an actual retail innovation, an alternate new way of doing um, retail takes a lot of time. And um, it, it pretty much not just getting big takes time, just getting started takes a long time. And yeah. we knew that uh, it was going to take about two to three years to just get the uh, the supply chain together because we're talking about getting dozens and dozens of producers across the world to make products for us and to make them under um, under our brand and not just any producers these these folks that have real solid strong brand names for themselves so we knew that uh, and uh, we knew that at this point there hadn't been another e-commerce company a major e-commerce company for again 25 years is 25 30 years so we went into stealth. We um, said, hey, we're not going to really run any kind of ads. We're not really going to have a functioning business um, that's open to customers. We're just going to focus on building out the supply chain piece of this. And we spent about two, three years. Um, we, we sort of split up the, the exercise into two pieces, one the producer side and one the consumer side. On the producer side, we just spent two, um, about two and a half years just looking for suppliers across the country. We I think we met with and taste tested and uh, uh, negotiated with about, I think, 1,500, maybe 2,000 suppliers um, wow. all over the world. Uh, you know, there would be weeks when it was just matcha week at Move, and we would just get seven different types of matcha from uh, different uh, <laughs> you know, small villages in Japan. Then there'd be another week that was just uh, waffle week. And I mean, we wouldn't call it that. It just happened to be that way. And we were just getting waffles from all these different places in Belgium. 
so we went through this. It doesn't sound difficult. That sounds awesome. But it was it, we went through this fairly difficult um, kind of uh, arduous process of pulling together a supply chain on one end. And on the other end, we knew that at the same time, you know, we didn't want to, even though we didn't want to be selling products, we just didn't think that um, you, it, it's one of those companies that it, it, there's just a bigger threshold um, before you can get this out into the water. You can't really launch a hack together version of this. Or, I mean, to the degree that you could, we, we had done that during YC. We had that phone number and I was delivering it. <laughs> really, you kind of had to jump from one to 10 on this company. So what we did was um, for a while, we ran this really elaborate experiment um, on the customer side where we started a new brand um, as we were going out still sourcing products. We started a new brand. We took the word move and we wanted whatever domain we could get. We added the word butter to it. We call it move butter. And for about two years, we ran this sort of um, um, proxy brand, essentially. I mean, there was nothing, there was nothing um, fake about it. It was just not what we were. Uh, it was not the permanent thing. It's kind of this yeah. interim brand. And we use that to start testing out products. We would we started off with a list of 100 products just to figure out what were people comfortable buying in this way? What were people comfortable buying without the brand that they're used to? Uh, what were people used to uh, comfortable buying online? That kind of thing. And um, we started off and started with 100 products. We would put them up on the site. We would show them to our audience of people, whoever is paying attention. Um, and uh, Every week or so, and we were all really open about this experimentation process. Every week or so, we would remove the bottom 10, 20% of products and we'd replace them with new products. And we'd just keep cycling through this over and over and over again. And over the course of about two years, by the time our, our producer supply chain came together, we had also built up uh, this really deep, precise understanding of what the store needed to look like on the other side. So on one yeah. side, we pulled together a great cohort of producers. On the other side, we uh, had all these customers that had really told us, I think we shipped out 10,000 or so orders uh, while testing. Um, we'd really figured out what that needed to look like. Worth mentioning, it also kept the company going. We also needed money. <laughs> and it's not, you know, we can't just go off gallivanting, looking for producers two years without money. And, you know, the revenue from that kept us going. And um, all of this came to a head about um, uh, late 2019. We felt like we both sides of our store were ready. Both sides of our uh, of our company were ready. And in late 2019, in the last quarter of 2019, we went out into the world and said, "Look, um, here's the store. Here's the idea. We've already done the work to bring the producers in, and we're going to launch it in 2020. And you can buy a membership now and basically lock in that price for life. Lock in that membership price for life. And it did really well. I, think our pitch landed with people in the last three months of 2019 we sent it up we sold about a million dollars of membership uh came out to about five thousand years of memberships just in the last i think two or three months in 2019 and in 2020 we uh opened up the store we all of these products from around the world hundreds of products landed in our warehouse in uh, the beginning of the year and by february we started shipping and the last nine months have just been uh, um trying to keep up with demand while also uh, operating in a <laughs> pandemic world. So yeah, that's, that's the story. Yeah. And there's a lot to dive into with that. One of the things that I automatically kind of pops into my head is going through this process of finding these producers. I know you've, I think you mentioned the website or something of having these, you know, 50 award-winning producers and a variety of them are just very high level, like Michelin chefs, celebrity bakers, et cetera. What were some of the parameters or what you're looking for in selecting these producers in the first place? That's a great question. Um, 
so we, we were very careful and it's actually, you know, just to circle this back to YC, I remember once having this conversation with Michael Seibel, uh, who was our uh, partner at YC. And I asked him how YC made decisions around companies. And um, it, it was contrary to what I think a lot of people expect. Uh, I think investors that aren't as good as YC often work with this philosophy of um, it's this process of elimination where they look for reasons to not accept someone. Um, whereas YC had this process of, um, you know, there's three people, there are three people in your interview when you uh, do that with YC. And if one of them is really able to, or willing to stake their reputation on you and say, no, we have to let this company in. Even if the other two people hate you and think that there are millions of reasons to not let you in, <laughs> they will let you in. Uh, and we really, um, I promise this will be the last YC reference I make. I, oh, it's a great uh, one of the, I think the, the risks a lot of YC founders run is sounding like they're forever obsessed with YC. I promise I'm not one of those people who just came up early enough in the conversation that's kind of stuck in my head now. Um, but, you know, we had that philosophy towards producers. We wanted to make sure that we were looking for reasons to accept people, not reasons to, uh, to reject them. So we inter- very intentionally didn't have a checklist. We didn't do things like, oh, if, they're, if you're not organic, then, you know, um, we're not going to work with you. If you're not this and that, then we're not going to work with you. It was more about, we were looking for incredibly special stories of people. We wanted to see someone that had spent an irrational amount of time and effort perfecting one thing. Uh, Cause that's what we've done. That's what we're like. And uh, we wanted to find somebody, we weren't looking for generalists. We wanted specialists and we wanted somebody that had a really deep connection. Um, and had spent again, a lot of time trying to perfect one product. Other qualities we really look for is we don't like nostalgic brands. We don't like nostalgic creators. Um, there's this real sense in the food world around every, the only way a lot of people are able to find to market products is, oh, 19th generation family recipe. Oh, we've been doing this for 700 years the same way. And it's, that was just boring to us. They're just, I mean, the legacy brands do that. They do it well. This whole speaking to sort of heritage and kind of old school ways. We wanted someone that had an understanding of that. We love classically trained people. But we wanted someone that really had something to say about where an industry needs to go to. So we wanted to work with people that were doing plant-based meats. We wanted to work with people who were getting more into regional cuisines, not just sort of generically selling Chinese food or, or Mexican food or Indian food, but you know, we're really getting specifically into New Delhi cuisine and uh, uh, Sichuan cuisine or uh, Oaxaca cuisine, that, that kind of thing. So we were really interested in working with people who had spent a lot of time perfecting, honing their craft, getting really yeah. good at the thing that they did. And then number two, they had something uh, compelling to say about where they thought that craft was going to go. And that combination is shockingly hard to find. And um, so that was our process. Um, you know, there, there are other sort of smaller things we look for, but uh, at, a, at a very high level, that's the thing that I think binds off all of our suppliers together is that they are incredibly um, married to their craft, but also they've thought a lot about where their craft needs to go. And obviously that's the, one of the hugely important things of your business model is these having amazing producers. Cause that, I mean, that is, that is the business. And, and one of the things I want to go back to though, that you had mentioned before and kind of this whole Silicon Valley thing around waitlist, you do have 130,000 people on the waitlist. How are you determining how many people you want to bring in every time you open it up, when you open it up, uh, et cetera, in terms of that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So that's the funny paradox of what's happened with us <laughs> is um, I think there was a time at which we had a wait list um, to, I mean, you know, the, the, the story that I just told that we, we started off sort of creating a wait list because we didn't really know any other way to get started. 
And funny enough, it's become our, um, it's become the thing around our ankle this entire time. I don't think we've ever had a moment at Move where we were just freely letting members in. The entirety of the time that the company's been around, we've had to keep membership or access closed, and we've had um, a large wait list of people um, waiting to get in. And at no point has that been larger than right now. As you said, 132, I think it's almost 135,000 people on the wait list waiting to get a membership to move. And uh, there are a few things affecting that. Uh, number one is actually the pandemic. We realized something during the pandemic, when in the, the, early, uh, the early months of it, that keeping the number of members small allowed us to go out and find um, uh, products that the rest of the supply chain, the rest of the retailers were going to struggle with. But if we kept the number of members small, we could go out and find these products that people just weren't able to bring on. I mean, for example, launching uh, flour when that was uh, in short supply or launching meats or launching more meats when that was in short supply, uh, launching hand sanitizer when nobody seemed to be able to get any of that. Um, We really um, found that I think keeping the the membership low, it was going to be an incredibly tumultuous time for the global supply chain. And the only way we could make it through that was we needed to get a grip on demand. That was number one. But what that's translated into is we've actually realized that that's more than just a pandemic strategy. That's that's what we need to build a company around is most companies sort of tailor demand around supply. They go, hey, well, we've got a um, whatever, you know, they we've got um, 10,000. Um, we've got 10,000 orders for something or people really want the X and Y thing. And so now we're going to go out and, and source that thing and try to find a version um, you know, this is too vague the way I'm describing it. We want to launch, let's <laughs> say, an olive oil. We're going to go out and look for the best olive oil out there. And, you know, we're just going to be conservative and assume that we're going to get 10,000 orders for it. Um, and what that leads to is that's that's a an easy way to sort of regress to the, the bottom of the supply chain, um, because then you're constantly prioritizing scale over quality. And you end up with basically the worst quality product that's most easily mass manufactured. Um, we wanted to flip that on its head. We wanted uh, our, um, instead of demand leading supply, supply leading demand. So we wanted it to be more like, all right, well, we want to launch. Now we're working on launching our first non-grocery category, for example. What does that take? How many members do we need to have to be able to, um, and you know, we, let's, let's say we want to launch personal care. Here are the people that we want to work with. They're doing great work. Um, and you know, they've got this real sort of expertise around this stuff. We want to launch their products. To do that, we need to be able to buy, let's say, a container load. Um, and so we really, we reverse engineer how many new members we need to let in based off of what we want to be doing with our store. And yeah. that's become a very important operating philosophy in the company is that it's always, always, always driven by the product. Uh, there are things we want to do with the product, new, um, new SKUs we want to launch, new producers we want to bring on. And whatever that takes, sort of, we, we translate that into, okay, well, then this month we need to let in a thousand new members. This month we need to let in this many. Um, so yeah, that's, that's our process. And, and one of the things I want to discuss, because we haven't dove into this yet, I know you talked about the fundraising side of things in terms of YC and, and that route as well. But with that, with the goals you have and really trying to decide on how you take this to the next level and where's next with Move, you are crowdfunding through WeFunder. How did that decision come about? Yeah, um, it actually is tied to the idea of the waitlist. We found pretty early on that uh, the type of company this is, uh, the 
the fundamental uh, economics work very differently for us than I think they do for most companies. I mean, if you did, you know, you kidnapped a um, private equity analyst from one of the big banks, and you, uh, <laughs> you sort of blindfolded him. And uh, I don't know why you need to kidnap this person for this, but just I like the example. To the analogy. <laughs> uh, you put our numbers in front of this person and said, hey, what type of company is this? Um, they would not guess that it's a uh, uh, it's a consumer B2C company. Um, they would guess that it's we sell software to large enterprises. Each customer is so incredibly valuable, just purely financially, so insanely valuable for us. It's I've spent some time, I've spent some portion of my life doing this in this world, and I have never seen numbers like this, just in the way that people use Move. So, you know, I think the in interesting thing about Move is that if you were to make a Venn diagram, um, and on one side you put um, traditional e-commerce companies such as Amazon or Jet or something like that, um, where people shop fairly regularly and they make uh, pretty large orders. You know, they're, they're getting a lot of their, they're treating them like utilities, basically. Uh, you put companies like that on one end. On the other end, uh, or on the other circle, you put brands, direct-to-consumer brands like Everlane or Warby Parker or uh, Dollar Shave Club or any, any of those companies. Um, there isn't a lot of overlap between those two circles, they kind of operate independently. You're either a brand and you only sell your own products and then you're selling four or five products that they really become more specialty than anything. Um, or you're a retailer and you're a marketplace and you're selling everyone's products and then people go back to you over and over and over again. Um, we sit in the middle. We sell a lot of products and those products are all our brand. And so as a result, the kind of spend we see is unlike pretty much any other consumer company, people spend, uh, I think I'm allowed to share this number, our top 500 members in the last six months have spent over a half a million dollars. Um, people spend very, very aggressively with Move. Um, but when they do that, we're not a marketplace. We're not just skimming off the top like, um, like again, like Amazon or any supermarket. We are actually involved in the production of each of these products. And so we're you know, our, and that's reflected in our margins. That's reflected in uh, in how much control we have over the supply chain. It's we're really unique in that regard. So, because of that reason, um, the the actual fundamental economics are, are very very different for the for Move than they are for any other consumer company. And we wanted to find a way. Now, going back to to the idea of the waitlist, we wanted to find a way to build around that. We realized that each member for us is incredibly valuable, and also we have this waitlist. Um, and so we wanted to find a filtering mechanism um, to try to find the best people, the best members. We are fortunate to be in a place where we could choose who we let into the store. And we wanted it to be people that were joining for the right reasons. And a lot of different reasons to join Move. You know, it's incredibly high quality products that most people can't get in their supermarkets. They tend to be pretty competitively priced. It's a free two-day delivery, all of that. That's all great. But we wanted people who were joining because they really believed in the grand experiment that we were doing over here, this idea of being a new form of retail. Um, and that's where WeFunder came along. We found out about equity crowdfunding. And we immediately fell in love with it. We said, well, there you go. We've got a wait list of 130,000 people. Let's, let's make it really clear. Let's say, look, for, this, for the remainder of the year, the only members we're going to be letting and we're going to be letting in are people who are actually owners in the company. So if you want to get into Move, you can put as little as $250 and you can own a piece of Move and you can get into the store. And more than anything, it just became this incredibly effective filtering mechanism to find 
the most passionate fans, the most passionate members. And um, so that was that was number one. But then that that was our first campaign that we ran in 2019 and did really well and brought in, I think, our first thousand members or so. Um, and then the second campaign that we're uh, launching, I, I, I don't know when this is going to air, but in, in any case, if timing will be appropriate for when the uh, year launches November 15th. Got there you go. So wefunder.com slash move is, is where we're hosted. And uh, what you'll see over there is that it's really snowballed since then. It started off with just a way to give customers the ability to own the, the company and to filter for the most dedicated people. But since then, we realized, no, there's a lot of merit to the idea. You know, we're a supply chain company. And um, one of the interesting things about being a supply chain company is that if you can get the, the love and the support of all of the different members of the supply chain, um, the, it, it really compounds in this really interesting way. What, what I mean by that is if our producers owned a piece of move and if the delivery drivers owned a piece of move and the, the warehouse worker owned a piece of move and basically every single step of the supply chain, every single person in the supply chain owned a piece of the supply chain, then we get to this really magical place where suppliers are motivated to make products uh, that are higher quality and lower priced. Members are motivated to pay a little bit more for a product just so the producer can get paid um, properly. And they keep they stay motivated to, to keep working here. Delivery drivers are motivated to deliver on time. Warehouse workers are, deliver, are motivated to pack orders perfectly. Um, we just found that if we kind of share the wealth over here and we're able to um, to open ownership in the supply chain to the people contributing to the success of the supply chain, then we could get this really fascinating compounding effect. And uh, that idea came about around the middle of the year. It was, uh, you know, not surprisingly tied to everything that was going on around the pandemic. Uh, we had a lot of conversations with the company. We just thought it was totally gross and, and weird how um, how the industry was approaching the pandemic. It was all of a sudden this, this kind of uh, BSE term of essential workers came about. People who'd never been told that they would have to take this role were made into essential workers. Um, we realized everyone that's essential is also making minimum wage and is barely able to, to get by. Um, and also the pandemic was, you know, just kind of further deepened any sort of um, imbalance we were seeing in the economy, any kind of inequality that we were seeing. You know, the, we, we just thought that this was all happening at the same as we were coming up with this idea. We were seeing that the pandemic was worsening all of the worst trends in the economy. Uh, we say this in the campaign, but over the last 60 years, the richest family in the world and the richest man in the world have both been created by by retail. Yep, the Waltons and and Jeff Bezos just to not keep it just just to keep it specific, um, <laughs> and the Waltons or Walmart more specifically puts more people on food stamps than any employer in the country. Amazon has put more small businesses out of work than any business in the country, um, and the, all of that just got way worse during the pandemic because most small businesses didn't have the resources to stay open while uh, most big businesses did. Most uh, of the people that were called essential workers were having to put themselves in harm's way and not really getting paid uh, at all to do that. Uh, so we, we thought it was the right time. And that's that's where the idea came by to build the country's first community owned national retailer. And um, that's how the WeFunder campaign was born. And we're releasing it, as you said, November 15th. And uh, starting November 15th, anyone in the country, actually anyone in the world, can put in as little as $250 and to move, own 
a piece of stock in the company um, and be part of the supply chain, be part of making this thing work. So that's our story. I love it. And one of the things with that, one of the last questions I have around this is with the growth you've had so far, and now you're going to be launching on, on WeFunder and have people can actually own a piece of business. And when they own it, they're thinking about the future of the business in terms of what is this going to be. And you've mentioned already that you know, you've done like a million in memberships, like 5,000 plus members. You have this huge wait list. Like what does the future look like for Move in the next you know, maybe year or two and beyond? I'd be really curious to hear some of your thoughts. Yeah. Um, I think that the fundamental direction, I'll, I'll start with that and then I can sort of put a milestone here. The direction we have to move in is we have to be able to do for all of retail what we've been doing for groceries. So the the big trend you're going to see from us basically, um, for, I, I think for the next 10, 20 years, is us launching more and more categories with the exact same design and commercial philosophy and ethical philosophy as what we've done with groceries. So incredibly specialized craftsmen, uh, producers who are making these uh, very high quality products for us under the move brand uh, and brought directly to members without the markups, without the middlemen. So that's generally the direction you can see, expect the product to go into. Um, to give that a milestone, actually before that, that will naturally require us letting in more members. Um, it's yeah. There's a reason we pick grocery. And um, one of the big things was that the threshold for how many people you need to let in is much smaller. But basically every other category we're going to go with um, we're probably going to be buying a container load at the very minimum to be able to do this well. So um, every milestone around the product will be tied to a proportional milestone around memberships. And so the two major trends you'll see over the next uh, few years is us launching more categories and us at the same time tied to the new category we're launching, um, letting in more members off the wait list. And that, that'll be the, the constant pattern with Move. In the next year, we believe we can 10x the number of members that are in Move. Um, again, that would just, even if we do do that, we still wouldn't have <laughs> let in all of the wait list. But we think we can 10x the number of members and we believe we can launch three more categories uh, of equal size or larger than grocery. Uh, they're all in the works right now. Um, so that's, that's what we're looking for in the next year. Um, in terms of a five-year goal, we've been discussing this internally at the, the company quite often. We really think that by 2025, we have a real shot at building the largest um, digital, entirely digitally native um, supermarket in the country. Um, we think that COVID in interesting ways has opened up this opportunity and shown people why that's important. Um, and uh, we think that we're a good contender for it. We think we have a great product. We have a supply chain that's already scaled nationally. So over the next five years, our big goal is going to be to try to build the largest digitally native supermarket in the country. Um, and it's worth mentioning, just so nobody else calls me out for this, there aren't a lot of people <laughs> that do that right now. And so as a result, uh, we kind of give ourselves an easier job. But you know, we expect there will be competition that develops over the next few years. But um, that's our goal. That's our five-year goal. I love it. And uh, I have to have you back on as you progress because it's an exciting company to be a part of and, and hear more about. And uh, I could see this obviously continuing to, to grow and uh, I love your energy and everything what you guys are doing. And and where can people go to learn more about everything you're kind of working on and doing with Move and connect with you as well, Chai? Yeah. That, well, the easiest way would be to go to shopmove.co. That's our website. And there's, uh, there's a lot there to, to look at. Um, one interesting thing about us is we, we launch a new product every single week. 
they can read about that uh, on the website. It's uh, updated very frequently. They can also check us out on social. I think our Instagram is uh, probably the most effective, best place to look at. Um, it's just shopmove.co on Instagram. Uh, and of course, if you're listening to this after November 15th and before December 31st, go over to wefunder.com slash move. Uh, you can invest in move. Um, you'll get a membership and uh, you'll become a part of every single decision we make around this. And maybe something I didn't mention earlier that's important to plug right now is that members and um, the people who invest in WeFunder investors make every major decision to move. So they decide what products we sell next. You know, when I'm talking about launching new categories, it's not just willy-nilly us designing it in a, in a small design studio in San Francisco, though that is a part of it. It's actually decided by this community of thousands of people across the country. They vote on every single decision. They vote on which producers we work with, what categories we launch next, how we reshape the aisle, which products we don't bring back, which products we bring back. So it's a fully democratic version of retail. And you can join that by going to wefunder.com slash move. Awesome. I'm so excited for everyone to listen to this and, and learn more about the company. It's definitely exciting what you guys are doing, what you've already built and kind of the, the future is very bright. Chai, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.